Support for Sponsor Talk and the following message come from Sponsor CX. If you're looking for an innovative, intuitive, and simple way to manage your sponsorships, look no further than this sponsorship management software. Sign up for a demo today and find out how easy it is to manage your sponsors. Learn more at www.sponsorcx.com. Hey there, and welcome to the Sponsor Talk Podcast, where we interview some of the leading minds in the world of sponsorship marketing and discover the various ways and how brands interact with properties in sports, arts, film, music, you name it. I'm today's co-host, Jason Smith. You can follow me at SponsorshipJ on Twitter or on LinkedIn to keep engaged with our Sponsor Talk community. Hopefully today you learn something new about the industry and challenges you to keep thinking differently. All right, I'd like to welcome um, Aaron Cohen, former president and CEO of the Arizona Coyotes on the uh, on Sponsor Talk today. Um, welcome, Aaron. Thanks. It's good to be here with you, Jason. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays to you and all your listeners. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. And uh, so we're going to, uh, we're, we're just going to, I want to take you down your career path just so listeners can, can understand. We, we have a lot of people that that, that listen to this that want to know, hey, how did how did this person get to where they were or where they are? Right. And so I wanted to, we're going to walk down your career path, kind of talk about how you got to be the CEO and president of, of the Arizona Coyotes. And and then we'll talk a little bit of shop and some sponsorship, uh, some sponsorship talk as well. But um, but why don't we start with having you tell us where you grew up and and um, just a little bit about your life? Uh, absolutely. Well, I grew up uh, it both both distance wise and and weather wise very far away from uh, Phoenix Arizona grew up uh, in a suburb of Minneapolis grew up in Minnetonka Minnesota yeah grew up loved my experience uh, I was actually born in Denver and then moved to Minnesota when we were four or when I was four and uh, I just had great memories of growing up there you know what I always tell people surprised you know they assume that I played a lot of hockey growing up in Minnesota I actually never played organized hockey played a little boot hockey on the on the ponds from time to time but uh the diehard basketball fan growing up and and played basketball and played football and uh you know it's it's kind of funny when you think about where the path takes you but uh go from Minnesota not playing any hockey and then going down to the desert and running a hockey team uh you know life has interesting twists and turns yeah, for, for sure. For sure. And did you, did you, I mean, was it, uh, yeah, you ended up playing football um, in college. Did, was football kind of the, the sport of choice for you? I mean, it sounds like you're a basketball fan, but was, was football where your heart and your love was? Yeah, you know, it was interesting. I, I think, uh, you know, early on, I, I was really more of a basketball guy, uh, just diehard basketball fan. And, you know, played football starting in, in the fourth grade and, and certainly loved football as well. And yeah, as I got older and, and uh, got into high school, um, you know, just my football, uh, you know, skill set, I think was better, you know, aligned for, for playing collegiately than basketball, uh, which is a fancy way of saying I wasn't as good at basketball as it was in football. <laughs> but, uh, but I, you know, loved playing basketball, loved, you know, as a super fan of my, my uh, late father and I had uh, season tickets to the Minnesota Timberwolves. So, you know, some of my best memories growing up, um, you know, we're going to games with him. And then, 
uh, we used to do this thing, you know, <laughs> looking back at it, uh, uh, you know, he probably uh, got some grief from my mom for doing this, but uh, we'd go to games on a Tuesday night uh, in downtown Minneapolis at the Target Center, and they had a, uh, a fitness center, a uh, health club right next to the arena. So, you know, we'd go to the game, watch the game, and then afterwards, and this is when I was in middle school and stuff like that, I'd want to recreate some of the, you know, the, kind of the, the Kevin Garnett, or I, I used to think I was Stefan Marbury, you know, running the point. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, stay up after the game, like, you know, practicing by myself in the gym, and my dad was watching me, and, and uh, you know, we'd get home, it's like, almost midnight on a school night and you know so but uh but looking back at it now I mean those are some of my greatest memories of, of spending time with my father and and certainly uh you know memories that I I uh thought of uh you know after he uh, passed away a few years ago so you know just great memories playing basketball and you know just playing sports all together growing up had a good group of friends and we were always uh you know competing and and no matter what we were doing whether we were playing flag football or basketball or you know, pond hockey, just always uh, getting out in the Minnesota winters and summers and, and just competing. Yeah, it didn't matter how cold or warm it was outside. You just wanted to go play, play sports. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, I, I was the same way. I, I, I'm a huge basketball fan. I love the NBA, but I was a better football player than basketball player. My, my, my two older brothers, they were better basketball players than I was. But but yeah, I, I, I love basketball as well. But football was kind of the one maybe because there's there's an, there's more people on the field that you you can actually maybe mess up a little bit and get, can cover can cover up some of your mistakes maybe I don't know what it is but but uh, oh, yeah. but I, I was the same way now you went you went and attended uh, Bowdoin College in in Maine you played football there what did you go there on a football scholarship were you recruited by them were you or was it something where you're like hey I want to go here because that's far away from Minnesota it, yeah uh, it is far away that. Yeah. So, I mean, it was interesting. So, uh, so Bowdoin is division three. It plays in the new England small college athletic conference. So Amherst and Williams and, and, uh, Wesleyan and Trinity and those, those different schools there. And it was interesting because I hadn't really spent much time in new England, uh, growing up and, uh, started getting recruited by some Ivy league schools and actually tore my ACL my junior year of high school and uh, caused some, some of the schools that I was visiting and getting recruited by to get a little nervous. Uh, you know, back then, the, the ACL surgery was a little more dicey than it is today. Uh, sure. uh, you know, there was more concern about long-term impact. But, uh, you know, I went out and visited a couple of the Ivy League schools and really liked the experience out there. And then uh, when their recruiting interests slowed a little bit, uh, the, the NESCAC schools kept on calling. And, you know, I went out on a long trip and visited a bunch of those different schools. And it's interesting because, you know, they're all pretty small liberal arts schools and, you know, all beautiful campuses in New England. And, uh, you know, my view is you can't really go wrong with any one of them. So it really came down to what was the best fit. And, you know, spending time with uh, the coach at Bowdoin and then, you know, some of the players and just seeing the setting there, uh, just really fell in love with it and, and thought this would be a great place to go for four years. And uh, just had a, a wonderful time there, really enjoyed playing football. In my senior year, we, we brought us to the best record that the team had had since 1970. So, you know, that was that was a proud achievement at the at the end of college there. Um, but, yeah, just really what enjoyed position it. did you play? I played, so I, I came in, uh, so I played in, in high school, I played uh, running back and strong safety. 
and I was recruited. I came in as a strong safety. And then uh, my sophomore year, we had uh, the injury bug at running back. And I think we had three running backs get hurt and, you know, a couple of the season ending injuries. So from an emergency basis, it, you know, it's kind of like the, the Broncos situation a, a few weeks ago yeah. with the COVID yeah. thing. They're like, who can play quarterback around here? It's kind of like the same thing <laughs> with me with uh, running backs. So they threw me in there and ended up, uh, you know, doing a pretty good job. And then they said, okay, well, we need to make this switch permanently. So, uh, so then I ended up playing running back my final uh, junior and senior year. Oh, that's, that's awesome. What was your longest run from scrimmage? Uh, I think my, I, I got a good one. Uh, I, I think uh, it was about 45 yards uh, scattered nice. into, uh, into the end zone. So that was pretty fun. But uh, uh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. The glory days. The glory days. Those are far behind. Now I can, uh, you know, if I try to run uh, 45 yards chasing after my uh, two boys, then, uh, you know, I'm winded. So those you're are the pulling, good old days. You're pulling a hamstring at 45. Exactly. You got to be careful these days running anything more than about two yards. <laughs> well, uh, from an academic standpoint, you focused on economics, which for me, it was super difficult. I don't know. Maybe I just missed missed the uh, the supply demand, how it all worked there. But for me, it was difficult. <laughs> but you you actually got your degree in, in economics, um, and uh, that was probably hard while being a football player too, just to keep up. That's a, a difficult degree. So I mean, why did you decide economics? Yeah. Well, first of all, about the only thing I remember is is the supply and demand. Supply demand. So there so you that's, go. that's all I got for my uh, degree. Uh, no, it was it, it was great. I mean, I, I wanted to, uh, you know, some of the liberal arts schools, they don't have kind of formal, you know, business degrees. Economics is probably the closest you get. And, uh, you know, I, I really liked business. I, I thought that there were a lot of uh, there's a lot of alignment to team sports. And, you know, I thought it was something that, you know, ultimately I would like to get involved with and just have that, you know, basic uh, knowledge and understanding. But um yeah, it was a challenge. I mean, some of those economics professors are no joke. I mean, there was uh, some of that stuff, you know, it's not like, hey, you just have to read 10 pages and then you're good. I mean, there was some uh, complex concepts. And yeah, I remember dur during uh, college in the off season, we had uh, these, these uh, you know, running and conditioning sessions. And really early in the morning, it was like, you know, 6 a.m., um, you know, four days a week. And then I remember I had this econ class. It was starting at eight. So I'm, I'm you know, waking up at five and running to, you know, the, the workout, getting the workout in, running, showering, getting ready for class and then sitting in a class. And can't lie, I had to drink a lot of coffees to, you know, make sure that I was staying up at uh, those uh, 8 a.m. classes. And, you know, a couple of times I think I got caught, you know, my, my eyes were kind of shuddering a little bit, probably when we were going over the supply and demand curve. And, uh, and, you know, the professor kind of gave me a look like, what's this guy doing? He's probably, you know, up all night partying and, you know, now he can't wake up. He can't stay up in class. And it's like, if only you knew, if only you knew, I just uh, did a two hour workout right before this. But Oh, totally. Let's see. I remember the, the invisible hand and the invisible hand, Adam Smith's invisible hand and supply demand. That's about all I remember. Well, um, you, you got more than me. <laughs> that's good. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Um, let's see that you went to Arizona state. This is how you get down to Arizona, right? And yeah. go to law school. What was law school like and why did you choose Arizona state? Yeah. So it was interesting. I, when I got done with college, 
I really wanted to be involved in sports and, uh, you know, I was considering different routes to stay involved in sports. Actually had some uh, teammates of mine that got into coaching and I, I considered, uh, you know, doing the, the football GA route, maybe at a big school and, and just kind of work my way up there. And ultimately I thought, you know, I wanted to be involved in either a front office or, you know, maybe being an agent and, you know, and thinking about it and talking to some people that I respected and looked up to, um, you know, they said, look, getting your law degree is a good idea because it opens up a lot of doors and it's going to create some optionality for you with whatever you want to do uh, in sports. So I said, okay, that's good enough for me. That makes some sense. Uh, so then, you know, step two was figuring out what am I going to do? Uh, where am I going to go? And, uh, you know, my, my familiarity at that time was in the Midwest and it was on in the Northeast. So I was primarily looking at schools there. And then, uh, so I came back to Minnesota. I was working in Minneapolis for a year after school. And that's when I was applying to uh, law schools. And that winter, the Minnesota Gophers, you know, big Minnesota Gophers fan growing up. And uh, they played in a bowl game down in Tempe, Arizona in the Insight Bowl at that time. And they were playing Texas Tech. And uh, at the time, the, the Gophers gave up. That was the, the biggest lead that team had given up in bowl history. Um, so I got to see the Gophers, uh, you know, choke on that one. But, uh, but um, you know, it was still great coming down to Tempe. And I think when we left, I, I went with my dad. We left Minnesota. It was about negative 10 on the, on the runway. You know, cold, everything's just brutal outside we get down to phoenix and it's you know 75 degrees and sunny and palm trees everywhere and said wow you know I, this wasn't on my radar but it is now so then i started looking around at things and, and doing some research and i talked to the dean and asked about what connections they had in sports and she said look we don't really have any formal sports program but i know the general counsel of the minnesota vikings and i said oh that's a small world that's where i'm from and she said, well, if you come here, then, you know, I'll see what I can do. I can try to get you an internship with the Vikings. And thought that was good enough for me. So I, I came on down to school and I was pounding on her door the, the first week of school with my resume. And, and I don't hear anything until, uh, you know, the first uh, week of finals. And, you know, for, for law school finals, it's just like the worst experience that you could imagine, right? It's just you're locked in a... Uh, in a dungeon, you're locked in the library for, you know, 15 hours a day, just trying to get ready. And, you know, all your, all your grade is just one test. There's no midterms, there's no papers. It's just one three hour test and that's your grade. So if you don't come to play that day, you know, things could go pretty bad for you. If, if you do, then, you know, they could work out. Um, so I get a call hey, you from thought, the, you thought economics was bad, right? Yeah, this is a total, <laughs> totally different. And uh, so I get a call from the dean and I'm just, you know, depressed sitting there. And she goes, hey, guess what? I, I got you an internship. It starts the day after your last finals in, in Minnesota with Kevin Warren. Um, and, and for those of uh, the listeners that don't know Kevin's background, so he was the general counsel of the Minnesota Vikings then became the chief operating officer. And now he's the commissioner of the uh, Big Ten. Um, so I, I was able to jump in with Kevin my first semester uh, that winter break, hustled back up to Minnesota, was just involved with everything with the Vikings with him, and then uh, developed a great relationship with him and was working uh, for Kevin during uh, all my breaks that I could muster and then right after school before I started uh, practicing law. So it, it was awesome being with the Vikings. Now you did that. How long did you, how long did you internship for the Vikings? 
uh, on and off for like four years. Uh, it wasn't a full four years because I was still going to school, but um, you know, just every, every little break that I got, I was bouncing up there uh, after I was done with school before uh, practicing, I worked for the Vikings for a season. Um, so it was just a, a lot of fun and, and my first foray into professional sports. And I knew that, uh, you know, this is something that I wanted to be doing with my career. What did they have you doing for the Vikings when you, when you were working for them? Oh, so it was interesting because Kevin was really the kind of a consigliere to the ownership group. And, and uh, it was kind of the, the Wilf family lived in New Jersey, so they weren't, um, you know, day to day in Minnesota. So uh, Kevin was, you know, he became the chief operating officer. He was really, even when he was the lawyer there, was really more of a chief operating officer. So uh, and he had a lot of contacts. He uh, won a Super Bowl in St. Louis with Dick Vermeil and the Rams. And, uh, you know, it was, it was very tied into football operations. So uh, and was the main point person with the league for, you know, material issues. So, you know, we had some crazy times up there. We had uh, I was kind of Kevin's right hand man with, with everything. So, you know, there was a tampering allegation uh, by the Green Bay Packers when the Green Bay Packers alleged that we were tampering with Brett Favre. Uh, we had to deal with uh, there was a there was a phone issue with Brett Favre that triggered uh, some investigation by the league um, during my time. What else happened? Oh, the Metrodome, the roof collapsed. The the roof collapsed in the in the stadium. I was working with Kevin and, and the team there to uh, you know work towards getting a new building, um, which they ultimately did after I left. I think it was the key that I left, and then they were able to get it done. Uh, I think I was holding people back there, uh, but they, it really really did a lot. And then you know also during that time we were preparing for a potential work stoppage uh, in 2011, so things got a little dicey with the players uh, union and ultimately they resolved that but yeah it was just an awesome experience just seeing everything just seeing every piece of how you know front office works and manages uh you know itself so you know it was a great learning opportunity and you know can't thank Kevin enough for giving me that experience what an amazing opportunity to be able to touch so many different points of of legal challenges right with a team oh yeah um, it was it was really from, really from cool. the facility from the facility to a star player right to yeah just dealing with all sorts of allegations I think I think that's 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 amazing and and it's a testament to and, and you know it's something that you know I'm so appreciative of Kevin for and you know something that I've tried to do uh you know with people that have worked for me you know and I think a great lesson for for all leaders out there um you know there's a lot of internships or entry-level positions in sports where you know the manager isn't really you know, they're kind of giving you discrete projects and they're saying, go sit in the closet and get this done. Um, what I loved about Kevin was he really opened the door up to everything that he was doing and, and really showed me and helped guide me uh, just so I could understand his thought process and all the different issues, legal and otherwise involved. And, you know, that, that learning experience, uh, you know, I, I really truly believe has, has made you know, has, has positioned me well for, you know, everything I did with the Coyotes and beyond. So, um, you know, it's something that, you know, I've really tried to do with uh, my general counsel, just reading her into everything. And back when I was the general counsel of the Coyotes and she was the associate general counsel, just, you know, making sure that she saw everything that I was doing. That's a great, it's a great, that's a great lesson of, of uh, mentorship. And you, uh, this was a super interesting job that 
have seen that you've that you had in your career, which was serving as the legal counsel for the Arizona Super Bowl host committee. Uh, how did that come about, and and what uh, what did you do for the for the committee? So it, it was interesting. So when I uh, was with the Vikings, and then uh, right after school, I was, you know, trying to figure out what I wanted to do to start my career. And uh, Kevin gave me great advice. And, and you know, he said, look, if, if you stay here, you're kind of coming in here as an entry level lawyer. And, you know, although I try to get you involved in everything, kind of shadowing me and stuff like that, I just am so busy that, you know, I'm not able to kind of formally train you to be a great attorney like you could get at a law firm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he said, what's your goal? What do you want to achieve? And I said, look, I, I, I want to be an executive with a team. I, I think that's, uh, you know, something that I'd really like to do with my career. And, you know, I think just having gone to law school and being in that position, I think kind of the best entry position into being with a team or being an executive with a team is being its general counsel. Uh, so he said, you should really go to the biggest and best law firm that you can learn how to be a really good attorney and then, you know, just keep your uh, connections in sports and then something will open up. I don't know when, but something will open up. So I, I heeded that advice. I went to the largest law firm in Phoenix at Snell and Wilmer. And, you know, I had a great experience there. I learned how to be a good attorney. Uh, they weren't really a sports firm though. So I was hustling to try to do any sports related stuff that I could. So right when the Super Bowl was announced that it was coming to, to Phoenix in 2015, uh, you know, I, I picked up the phone and started hustling and finding out who was involved and, and uh, ended up connecting with a local business leader who is the chairman of the Super Bowl host committee and just said, look, I'd, I'd love to do anything I can uh, pro bono. Um, you know, I just want to be involved. And, and he was able to connect me and, and uh, you know, ended up, uh, you know, doing the legal work for the for the host committee. So, so you know, were, it was you, a were, lot. You, were you basically hired from? Did they hire you as an employee of Snell and Wilmer or was this, or was this just a, I'm going to volunteer and get this experience for, for the a volunteer and get this experience. But you know, the expectations were still, still pretty high. And especially as you got closer to the Super Bowl, uh, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on, a lot of moving parts. And, uh, you know, I was doing it just to, you know, help my resume and be involved and, you know, I did get some free tickets, which was nice. So I got to see, uh, you know, a heck of a Super Bowl. Um, and, I, and, you know, I, I got to tell you, it was, uh, you know, I was walking in with my wife and that was the Super Bowl. There was something weird. Speaking of supply and demand. See, you never thought this would happen. So Here we go. They, We're going there was uh, bringing back the econ from Bowdoin. <laughs> they had a. Uh, they had some broker issue where brokers overpromised the tickets to people that year. And for some reason, the supply was never there. So then the prices spiked as you got closer to game time, like you'd never really seen before. It was really weird. But, you know, normally these tickets are going for, you know, a few grand you can probably get in. At the time, I mean, we were walking up and people were offering us 15 grand for each ticket. And, uh, you know, I was like, oh, man, I, I can't I can't be selling. I, I got to, you know, I, I worked hard for this experience. I got to enjoy it. And, you know, ended up seeing that great uh, interception by the Patriots on Russell Wilson at the one yard line. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's, uh, you know, I, I try to tell a lot of young people, you know, especially young lawyers that want to be, you know, in sports. Um, you know, I mean, so many people 
want to be in this industry and so many people want to do this stuff. And, you know, you hear about sacrifices and stuff like that. Um, you know, I was, I, I remember, I mean, there were some tough times. I mean, you know, they, the Super Bowl folks weren't saying, oh, we're not paying you. So, you know, no, no problem, no rush here. I mean, we had tight timelines to execute that event. And, you know, there were times that I was working, you know, in my day job and, you know, being a lawyer at a big firm, you're involved in deals sometimes and you're up until midnight, you know, working on stuff. And then, you know, it's like, okay, set that aside. And now midnight to 3am work on the Super Bowl host stuff. And, uh, you know, the, it was, it was definitely a challenge, uh, you know, balancing everything. I didn't have kids at that time, so it made it a little bit easier, yeah. but, um, you know, those are the things that you kind of have to be willing to do to, to get your foot in the door and, you know, create opportunities. You know, I'm sitting here thinking too, I mean, you, you had someone offer you 15 grand for, for these tickets, you know, and, and it could have been really easy. I mean, that's a super tempting offer, right? You, you go, go for four hours and enjoy a game, right? Or, you know, all this work you put in, you could go, you know, sell them off for 15,000 and have that be your compensation, right? But what yeah. that shows me is, is how dedicated you were to sport, the love of the game, right? Like, you're like, hey, I wanted to go get this experience rather than just go gain 15 grand, right? Yeah. A quick 15 grand. It was like, I, I am so passionate about sports that, that I'm willing to pass up on that so that I can go in there and do, I just think that's, that's actually really telling about how much you love the game and love sports. No, it's, it it was, it was a great experience. Don't, don't get me wrong though. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I'd be lying if I said I didn't, uh, you know, maybe think about turning around and <laughs> going to find that broker. Hey, but, uh, you know, once we you. went through that security checkpoint, it's like it's all done at this point. We're, we're, we're locked and loaded. We're in. <laughs> that's cool, though. But that's an experience that, that uh, not too many people get. But um, so you were working for, you know, the, the firm there in, in Phoenix. And from, from there, you, that's where you went straight over to the Arizona Coyotes as the general counsel. So was that the job that eventually opened up? Yeah. So it, it was, you know, and it kind of goes to, you know, just, just getting your nose into things and, you know, creating some opportunities for yourself. Um, you know, when I was at the, the law firm, I kind of got known as, as the sports guy. Uh, so, you know, a big law firm, I mean, you know, they didn't have a dedicated sports practice, but things come up from time to time. And in 2013, there was a, a group of uh, Canadian, primarily Canadian investors that purchased the team, uh, the Coyotes, from the NHL. And uh, they, they hired Snell and Wilmer, and I was the lead associate. I got my, uh, uh, you know, myself into that mix and, and ended up representing this ownership group and purchasing the team from the, the NHL. So, Wait, so um, you ended up representing the ownership group just by calling them up and being like, Hey, I want to, I want to help you. I want to help you purchase. Well, the there was, there was a partner that, that brought them in. I think that they, you know, they needed, okay. you know, a, a law firm to help them do the deal. And uh, so they connected with a partner and then okay. the partner called me up and said, Hey, I need you on this case. So, you know, as an associate at these big firms, I mean, you're, you're kind of the one doing most of the work, uh, you know, and, and hustling and working with the clients and staying up late. Yeah. So, you know, I ended up working with them and, uh, you know, getting through that transaction and closing the deal and, uh, you know, just stayed in touch with those folks and they didn't need a general counsel at the time. Uh, but then a couple of years later, then there was a position open for general counsel. And then, um, you know, I was luckily their first call and, uh, 
you know, it was really a nice opportunity for me to jump in. And it was just the perfect fit because, you know, a lot of times, and, you know, I, before that I'd explored some other positions in sports where it was across the country and uh, you know, it just, uh, you know, wasn't as convenient as, as being able to just pop right over and, and uh, you know, go down to Glendale and work for the team. So, yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. And, and did you, did, what kind of, what kind of legal, experiences did you get in those two years that you were the general counsel oh it was fantastic oh, oh um you know right off the bat i i think the week after i stepped into that role um or, or i'm sorry the week before i stepped into that role um the the city of glendale had canceled the long-term lease with the team so you know right off the bat uh i was stepping into a challenging situation where the team was was evaluating, you know, what their long term future looked like, whether it was, you know, out of state or, you know, elsewhere in Arizona. Um, you know, obviously there is there's a rift there with the city of Glendale and, um, you know, stepping in uh, because I'd been involved with the Super Bowl and, and you know, just locally just getting to know a lot of people. Um, you know, I kind of got my foot in the door and, and playing a significant role early on. Um, in some of those those arena discussions and those political uh, issues. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, I started off as doing all the, the typical stuff that you're doing as, as a general counsel for a team. But then on top of that, dealing with, uh, you know, the arena issues. And then we had a complicated ownership structure at that time. And uh, we, we actually had like 13 owners. And, uh, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's tough, you know, no matter what business you're in, when you have that many different voices and, you know, all, all these people were very successful in other walks of life. And, um, you know, I was kind of the, you know, as the general counsel navigating some of those corporate governance issues and, you know, and, and kind of, uh, that, point, right? that was challenging. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, it was a great, uh, great experience. And I think through that, um, you know, the ownership and, and the league, uh, you know, develop some confidence in my skill set. And, you know, I think that created a lot of opportunities to, to move forward. How closely did you work with the sponsorship team? On very closely. Legally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it worked very closely. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because I, right when I started, I was kind of taken aback because, um, you know, I was doing a lot of the, the sponsorship related work on the, uh, with the Super Bowl. And right when I started, um, you know, the, I think the CFO at the time was uh, when, when they didn't have a counsel for, you know, a couple of months, you know, he was kind of, you know, practicing law, I guess, as, as a CFO or just kind of helping to shepherd some things through. And, uh, you know, the way I'd always done it is, you know, you're sending over to the other side, you know, the other party, you know, maybe a word doc and then, you know, maybe any markups that you have and another red line or stuff like that, just so you could kind of go through the changes and, you know, they were sending stuff to the other side um, as a PDF. And, it, you know, I always, you know, thought back to my time, you know, working on deals and getting stuff from the other lawyers. And, you know, I mean, I, I don't think I ever saw that, <laughs> you know, it was always a, a word doc and that if you have changes, you can make some changes. And, you know, I was, I was really confused by it. And, and I said, well, you know, what's, what's the purpose behind this? And, you know, the response was, well, you know, we, we want to make sure that the sponsor guys, you know, aren't changing terms to just get the deal done. And, and I, you know, so 
right off the bat, I was like, oh my God, like there's, you know, and I, I think historically there's probably been a little bit of a tension between, you know, the legal risk departments and then, you know, the sponsorship departments. But, you know, I said right off the bat, like we, this needs to get fixed because, you know, if, if, if we're concerned that sponsor people are like editing terms or, or not incorporating them, then, you know, I, I you know, I, I don't know if we have the right you know, people in here, uh, you know, this needs to be a collaborative process and people need to understand, you know, what, what you're doing and what I'm doing and all these different things. So it doesn't, doesn't um, sound like a partnership at that point, right? It doesn't sound like a partnership at all. So, you know, so, so that's kind of the, the baseline where I was starting from there, but, you know, we, we ended up fixing that and, and cleaning that up and, and, uh, you know, ended up having a great relationship with the sponsor team. Um, and, uh, you know, part of this, so I, I'm a big uh, fan of Will Ahmed and, and Whoop and everything that they've done with, uh, uh, you know, with their biometric testing. And you know, I was listening to a podcast with Will Ahmed and, you know, maybe he'll listen to yours here and, and he'll, you know, so I'm giving him proper credit for this. But, you know, he said when he's picking people and he's evaluating people to work for him, he wants people with high intensity, high humility. And, you know, it's interesting, but, it, you know, the idea behind that is, you know, you want people vigorously fighting for their position, but you also want them to be humble and recognize that other people, you know, with other different business interests or other verticals, you know, also need to advocate for their position. And, you know, ultimately, then you get an idea meritocracy and you get the best results. And, you know, that's what I think that we, you know, really accomplished with the sponsor group where, you know, they recognize the challenges and the risks and the need to protect the organization. Um, you know, and I recognize the need to get deals done. And, uh, you know, I think that we had a really good collaborative process and that's continued even, um, you know, after I left with our, our next general counsel. And you, you were the general counsel for two years and then, and then quickly were promoted to the COO role there, which, or, which was also the chief general counsel, I believe as well. Um, yeah. What do you, what, what, uh, tell me about that transition. To, to that yeah. One. Yeah. I mean, that was good. So right before that, um, there was a, a buyout. So the majority owner, uh, bought out the minority owners. Um, and one of the minority owners was the CEO at the time. And, um, you know, that process, you know, I, I think it was, it was designed to kind of recognize, you know, the significant, um, you know, issues I was involved with, with the organization and give me more clout beyond, you know, being, being seen as, as just the general counsel, um, you know, but then transitioned to that role and oversaw, you know, a number of different business verticals. Um, and then for a period of time before we brought in, um, you know, the CEO, uh, you know, it was kind of, you know, overseeing the whole organization. So, uh, you know, that was a big jump up from from being general counsel, but, you know, something that, um, you know, I really appreciate Andy, Andy Barraway giving me that opportunity and, uh, you know, appreciate, uh, you know, the opportunity to have more of that cloud and that influence on the whole organization. So from an operational standpoint, you over, did you oversee like sponsorship and ticketing and did that kind of fall under your umbrella? as well there. yeah yeah to begin with and, and then and then uh you know primarily uh you know so at that time when i was coo I was involved really significantly with running the arena project 
Yeah. Um, and then, and then uh, community relations and then communications and legal and uh, so HR. Sometimes they, pull, sometimes they pull the the tickets and sponsorships out and under like a chief revenue officer role. Right? Yeah. Did you have, did you have those as part of your, your umbrella? As no. So, so before we brought in the CEO, I did, and then we transitioned and then okay. that was, that was under the CEO. So ticketing okay. corporate and, uh, uh, marketing some areas you had more the facility the operational side of, of exactly the building and things built awesome and you that that wasn't very long that was what a season maybe that yeah you, and, and then yeah, what that was what, what happened with the ceo there that because you then were promoted to president and ceo of, yeah of yeah I, I mean, it was kind of a transitional thing. So when we brought in uh, the CEO, Steve Patterson, um, you know, Steve had a fantastic uh, history in sports and, and, you know, really a seasoned leader. And uh, it was kind of, uh, you know, I think the, the owner, Andy Barraway, kind of saw that as, as you know, wanting to transition me, but wanting to have somebody kind of helping, you know, with that transition. So, you know, Steve came in for a year and, and kind of, you know, helped, you know, me in the process of learning and getting caught up to speed. And uh, he had a lot of other business interests that he was involved with. So then, um, so after, you know, I think close to a year of, of doing that, um, you know, I feel, like that's kind of been, I feel like that's kind of been his MO, the Portland Trailblazers, right? He was, yeah. Was he the athletic director at Texas too, right? Yeah. And, yeah. And yeah. Kind of, kind of, kind of goes and does his thing and then moves on to the next uh, shiny toy. Exactly, exactly. So then it, it kind of gave me an opportunity to, you know, then oversee everything at that point. And, uh, and, you know, that was that was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, really, really appreciated the opportunity to grow with the organization. And, you know, something that was really important for me early on, um, in my time as CEO, you know, for, for a long time, I think the Coyotes had struggled in the market to, you know, one really, you know, gain relevancy within the business and civic community and two, just the, the external messaging and the internal messaging for that part, uh, part um, you know, we're so focused on challenges and problems. And, uh, you know, I used to watch that show Entourage and, uh, you know, I remember there was a time Vinny Chase was uh, looking at different agencies and, you know, he was getting wooed by all these different agencies and they were talking about promoting his brand, the Vinny Chase brand. And, you know, they were showing, you know, iconic brands that are saying Coca-Cola, you know, Mercedes Benz and Vinny Chase. And, uh, you know, I was telling our folks, I said, look, for too long when in the market and, and you know, not just in the market outside, just in the sports industry, when people think of the Arizona Coyotes, they're thinking, Okay, arena challenges, they're thinking bankruptcy, uh, they're thinking, you know, are they going to move out of the, the market relocation? And, you know, what you're not thinking about with all that stuff is you're not thinking about the impact that we're making in the community, not thinking about the hockey games and, and you know, the great storylines that we have with our players. Um, so, you know, it was really important for me. I spent a lot of time early on in my tenure as CEO just listening and, and gaining a really good understanding for how we're perceived in the market. And, you know, then I came back and, you know, spent some time talking to you know, our leadership group and, and, you know, talking to some other people internally. 
And what I felt was very important was just having a message, a, a consistent, simple message that we could go out, uh, you know, and, and talk to people about what we're all about and our core goals or our core pillars. Uh, so we came up with three core pillars. One is, you know, winning on the ice. Two was going out and recruiting new fans and, and building fandom throughout the marketplace. And then three was positively impacting the Arizona community. And, you know, I know it sounds simple, uh, you know, kind of three basic points. But, you know, I saw it as really important and, you know, told our people that everything that we do, every business decision that we make, we need to fit it into one of these three boxes towards advancing one of these three goals. And, you know, I think that really caught on and it started to resonate with people in the marketplace. And, uh, you know, we really uh, spent a lot of time highlighting the, the community engagement work that we were doing. Um, because it was significant. And, it, you know, I mean, a team that was struggling and losing some money, we still found a way to, you know, donate $3.5 million, you know, back into the Arizona community during my time in, in, in the final year that I was there. And, you know, the franchise record there. And, you know, and just by, by not talking, the other thing is historically, there'd been so much talk of the arena and is it going to be a new arena in Tempe? Is it going to be in Scottsdale? You know, what's going to happen here? And, you know, when you do that so much, all anybody does then is just sit on their hands and say, okay, come talk to me once you have all this stuff figured out. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you kind of forget to live in the present and we had a lot of positivity in the present. And by not talking about that and, and kind of drowning out the arena noise and talking about the positive things we were doing in the community or, or going out and trying to recruit new fans and exposing new people to hockey, that work, you know, started to get highlighted more and it started to impact every avenue of our business. Um, you know, we started getting new sponsors that, that were more excited to partner with our brand. Uh, you know, we started to get more fans buying in, liking the focus and liking the direction that the team was on. Uh, we had free agents coming on board and other people, you know, that, that wanted to come and, and align with our team and with our brand. And I thought that was really important. Well, and, and community efforts from a sponsorship standpoint are extreme, extremely important. A lot of brands in their sponsorships, they, they need to make sure they have some sort of community involvement as part of their quote unquote sponsorship package. Right. I mean, that that being able to tie yourself from a brand standpoint, being able to tie yourself to an organization like the Coyotes and use that brand association on, on, on your side, right? And, and then go out there and do good in the community. It's a powerful combination um, when, when you get those two together. And, and um, it helps the team, it helps the brand, and it helps the community you live in, right? And, yeah. and if there isn't, um, if there isn't some sort of community piece to a sponsorship, I think brands or brands and um, properties are they're they're missing out on that. Yeah, I, I completely agree, and I, I think that you're seeing a, a, a big shift in that. Um, you know, even before COVID, but I think it's even more accelerated post COVID. Um, but you know, I mean, historically, the the sports sponsorship model was just you know have a sign you know have some signage somewhere and you know throw up the sign and and you're getting visibility and then you know you get some sweet tickets and you get to go on a team road trip or something like that and you're, you're having a good time um you know and i think you know sophisticated businesses 
you know, recognize that if we want to fully maximize this sponsorship, we have to be joined at the hip with the team in terms of going out and leveraging the community's brand, um, you know, or, or the team's brand in the community yep. and, you know, really, really, you know, be sharing in that effort. And, uh, you know, there's so many different touch points that these teams can have in their communities. And, you know, I think uh, really sophisticated marketing groups, you know, for sponsors are recognizing that. And, and, you know, I think it's really fun to see where the industry has evolved in that regard. Well, I want to, I want to transition to, to, um, to what we're talking about here, which is, which is sponsorship and the involvement with the team and, and all of that. And, and during the pandemic, there's a lot of discussion about how uh, properties and brands work together through advertising um, assets that, that have lost value, right? Because there's no, there's no fans in the stands, right? Um, yeah. There's, there's media, right, that you can capitalize on. But how do you feel like, how do you feel like properties and brands navigate through the pandemic from a legal standpoint? Yeah, I mean, it's, so, you know, I, I'm sure, you know, most people don't know what force majeure meant before the pandemic, nor did they really care. And I think it was always viewed as one of those boilerplate, you know, things in a contract. And, and uh, you know, it's funny that now, you know, <laughs> you talk to most people in the sports industry and the amount of effort that they've had to put into paying attention into the force majeure contract is, well, you know, outweighs almost question. anything else. A lot of people have that question, does force majeure actually cover a pandemic, right? Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I think it all depends on, on, you know, ultimately what the agreement says. And, and uh, you know, I, I think, so there's a couple things. I mean, there's the, you know, the legal component, and then there's the, you know, the more practical business component. And, you know, the legal component can give you, you know, one side, maybe a little bit more leverage, but then there's also ultimately a decision you have to make. But, you know, from a legal standpoint, I, I think it says a couple of things. I mean, one, you know, just from a process standpoint, you know, it, it shows how important these things are, you know, when you're negotiating an agreement to really pay attention to all the, you know, what ifs, you know, that could come up, um, you know, historically, I think, you know, there's usually in, in sports, the team sends out the first draft and, you know, it's probably a pretty favorable team draft. And, you know, you get some sponsors that just say, okay, where do I sign? You get some sponsors that push back a lot and have their yep. legal teams negotiating things and stuff like that. But, you know, it just shows, you know, how important it is to pay attention to all that stuff. You know, the second thing I would say, and, you know, I heard this from some NHL folks and, and, uh, you know, it's just a good lesson for, you know, everybody, you know, involved in the space. Uh, you know, I, I used to hate, so when I was, when I was an attorney and it was doing these M&A deals, um, you know, you'd have somebody selling their company and, and, you know, they're making millions of dollars if they sell the company and, you know, you're working hard and you're getting all this stuff done and you'd always get to this point where, you know, you can have the closing and, you know, you look and you go, okay, we could stay up for three straight days and we could close on Friday or, you know, we could have a nice leisurely, you know, a few days and work a little bit over the weekend. And then we close on Monday and, you know, the, the, the person selling that's, you know, ready to make all the money would always say, stay up all night. And, you know, it'd always be like, come on, who cares? You know, it's a couple extra days, but you know, you just never know. You never know. And I heard a lot of stories um, you know, that, that this came up in the sports industry deals that were close to getting finalized drafts were being sent around to, you know, the different parties 
And, uh, you know, then the pandemic hits and then, you know, the sponsors say, I, you know, I, I don't know what the world looks like. Let's put this on the back burner. And then, you know, you've missed out on an opportunity. So I think it's a good lesson. Time wounds all deals, right. And, and potentially time kills all deals, but you know, it's, it's, you know, when you have momentum, you got to forge ahead and you got to get things done. Um, it can, but, change, you know, as, it, it can change quickly. Yeah. I went to, I went to, in March, I went to Vegas for a, one of the college basketball tournaments down there. And, and literally I, I, we finished it out. We had heard about the coronavirus out there. It came back and all of a sudden things are like shutting down within like days, you know, it goes, it goes really quick. It mm -hmm. goes really quick. I, I remember, uh, you know, there was, uh, I, I think the first kind of big impact in sports was that Thursday, I think, before the NBA and NHL also ultimately closed down. So it was about a week before uh, where the city or the, the county of Santa Clara didn't want teams playing games. And the Sharks, you know, still played their game, but Santa Clara had said that they didn't really want it. And, you know, that Friday, I'm on a call with, you know, somebody in the NHL and, you know, they said, oh, you know, the corona hysteria you know kind of like it's some fleeting thing and you know and then with less than a week then you know the entire league is shut down so i mean it goes it goes really quick i you know i'll, I'll say this though i mean you know to your point about or your question about you know force majeure and how do you navigate some of this stuff i, I look I, I mean you know as a you know as a lawyer saying this uh you know, maybe I'm, I'm deprecating myself, but, uh, um, you know, I think it's really true. You know, law, you know, your legal position doesn't govern all of this, right? Because you have a, you have an agreement, you have a piece of paper and it might say, okay, the team is in a better situation and the sponsor still has to pay or vice versa or whatever. Ultimately though, you know, running a team and thinking about, you know, running this business and working with the sponsors the mindset that these teams really need to have is they need to be playing the long game and they need to find a way to show great value to the sponsors. And, you know, clearly, especially in a shortened season or, you know, a season where you don't have fans, obviously the sponsor isn't getting the full value of what they paid for. So, you know, are there opportunities to give additional assets to keep the sponsor happy? You know, if not, you know, you know, you, give refunds or, you know, discount things, uh, you know, ultimately the, the main goal is you want these sponsors aligned with your team and your brand for the long term. And this is a blip and we're going to get through this. Um, you know, but if you start chasing pennies rather than dollars, then, you know, I think those are the teams that are going to get in a lot of trouble with this stuff. And I think how brands, cause, cause brands are looking at this going, Hey, I really need to make sure I get the value of what I just paid for. Right. And then yeah. you've got these, these properties that are saying, we need to keep as much revenue as possible so that we can function. Right. And there's this, there's a little bit of, there's, there's a little bit of a challenge there because the, the property probably doesn't have as many assets to be able to provide to all of their partners. Cause it's not just one partner they have to deal with one brand they're dealing with, say they have 50 partners. They're, they're dealing with this with all 50 of them. Right. So they're, so they're going to have to pick and choose which ones they can provide. And obviously, I think probably the upper tier partners are going to receive some of those those extra make good added benefits that maybe have more media value. But I think the um, the key, what you just said there is how do you still maintain a partnership with 
getting the brands what they feel like they need. And that could be either in, in a, a make good media, make good, or it could be in the form of credits back on a future invoice potentially. Right. Um, yeah. to help alleviate that. And, and, and obviously there has to be some communication and talk, but, um, and maintaining that partnership, but, uh, what do you feel like is the, is the best way to approach that, that happy medium? It, you know, I think the best way to approach that is to have clear and open dialogue with the sponsors. And, uh, you know, look, I mean, it's, it's well known that teams are hurting through this and, and, you know, had a lot of layoffs and furloughs and stuff like that. Um, but so are the sponsors and, you know, a lot of businesses are hurting through this and, you know, to kind of do the approach of, yep, we got your money and, you know, maybe the agreement says this. So, you know, tough luck, you know, we got it. To me, that just strikes me as penny wise, pound foolish. And, you know, I really think the way for, for, you know, teams, if they're playing the long game, I mean, look, and I've heard this before during the pandemic, how you act during this time defines you and, you know, really, really sets the tone for how people are going to treat you going forward. I mean, if you're telling all your season ticket holders, we're not going to renew your ticket or we're not going to refund your tickets, or, you know, even if you, um, you know, have, have uh, you know, sympathetic reasons for, for doing so, if you tell all your sponsors, you know, we got your money and the agreement says we get to keep it. So, you know, best of luck. Great. You know, you might, you might have, uh, you know, a sponsor that, you know, could have been a 10 year sponsor and made you, you know, millions of dollars versus, you know, you got a couple bucks in the short run, um, um, you know, to cover you through this year. Um, you know, I, you know, my personal view is that, you know, the better approach is to think through the long run and, and really over, over deliver, you know, during this time to sponsors. And, you know, I think obviously there's, there's opportunities. I mean, the NHL, for instance, is creating, uh, you know, they opened up some new sponsor categories or new assets, um, you know, so, so they have helmet sponsors now, um, you know, so some teams are going, you know, to their, their biggest partners or their naming rights partners right off the bat to say, here you go, you know, we're, we're playing, you know, 56 games rather than, you know, 82 games. Um, we're not going to have fans in the buildings for the most part. Um, you know, we're going to give you this, we're going to give you some other stuff. You know, we'll try to work it out, um, you know, and get as close to the, you know, the full deal as we can. But, you know, we're also going to listen to you. And if, if, you know, there's opportunities where you don't feel like you're being treated fairly, you know, we'll scale some stuff down and, and keep you a great partner of ours. So we can be a partner for the next 15 years or so. Just in, in touch base, I want to touch on insurance a little bit. because And, and um, I know you've, you've, you've heard about Wimbledon, right? Uh, they ended up not, not having a a tournament in July, um, but they've been paying pandemic insurance, which is 2 million bucks a year. And the organizers are receiving a $141 million payout for the policy that they paid $35 million for over the past 17 years when they started paying on that, that insurance. Um, you know, I think I, I had read that they had, that they were going to generate 310 million in revenue from tickets, broadcast and sponsorship. I'm reading here. Um, but this insurance pretty much saved them because uh, they, they didn't because they didn't hold that event right, and they were able to at least make up, you know, about half of of what of what they were planning to to, to bring in. Um, what are your thoughts on pandemic insurance? And you feel like this is something that properties should budget for in the future? 
Well, you know, I'll tell you this. I think that properties are going to, uh, you know, absolutely be getting this going forward just with, you know, hindsight bias and, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, you know, risk aversion going forward. Uh, you know, look, it, it, it's it's a challenge, right? I, I mean, you know, Wimbledon, you know, is, is looking very smart for doing that. Um, you know, if, if, you know, this doesn't happen and this doesn't come, you know, uh, across, I mean, you know, they've, they've, you know, spent a lot of money on insurance too, that, that, you know, other, you know, uh, properties that haven't gotten insurance haven't had to spend. So, uh, you know, it, it's just kind of a question of risk tolerance, risk appetite. Um, you know, like I said, I, I think that just in the wake of this, I think that, you know, um, I, I would be shocked if almost every major, you know, property didn't have, you know, this type of insurance. You know, you have insurance for all sorts of things. The NHL has insurance for, you know, team planes crashing and, you know, and terrorist attacks and all sorts of things. Um, you know, I think everybody has, you know, or, or, you know, not everybody, most businesses have pandemic insurance. But, you know, what, what everybody was surprised to find is it doesn't cover the, the lost revenue associated with being shut down or, or you know, lost, lost interest because of a pandemic. It, it addresses, okay, there's an Ebola outbreak in your arena and, you know, we need to mitigate that and, you know, and clean up the Ebola outbreak. It's not, you know, covering the losses that people have experienced here. So, you know, I think a lot of people were disappointed to, to learn all this. And I know there's a lot of legal challenges, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a complicated issue. And, and uh, you know, like, like I said, I think going forward, a lot of people are going to be loading up on all, all sorts of insurance. But do you feel like there's any legal verbiage that partnerships should make sure are in agreements for the future? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think just, just making sure that they're well thought out and, and, you know, not kind of taking the process for granted, not just going, okay, yeah, we got an agreement. Everything's good. You know, I think it's it's good to have that collaborative approach and, and working with the team and with the sponsor and understanding, you know, I mean, for force majeure, for instance, I think, you know, really sitting down with the people involved saying, okay, this is what the language says, this, what the, this is what this means going forward, okay, is everybody comfortable with this, does this make sense for people, yeah. um, you know, that's going to avoid a lot of, you know, awkward discussions, I think, going forward when there's a clear understanding between the parties. From a from a legal standpoint, how do you feel like the pandemic is going to, you know, change sponsorships for the future, legally? Um, you know, it's interesting. I I, I think legally, like I said, I, I think there's going to be a lot more intensity on these agreements. I think there's going to be a lot more of the, you know, what happens if a pandemic occurs? What happens if this? What happens if that? Um, you know, it's probably going to slow down the process of getting some of these things executed. Um, you know, so, so, uh, you know, maybe that's, you know, a bad thing, but, you know, it's probably also a good thing in the sense that, you know, people have a real understanding of what their agreements say and, you know, a clear, you know, alignment between uh, all the parties. You know, with the new ownership recently, you've now stepped away as the president of, of the Coyotes with the, with the new ownership. Um, and, uh, and you've been working on some, some cause marketing initiatives. What are some of those things you've been working on? Yeah, I, so it's been a fun opportunity to be involved civically here and, you know, working with some brands uh, locally, working with the local hospital, um, you know, actually. And, and uh, 
you know, I've been trying to listen and pay attention to a lot of, you know, the trends that we're seeing and things that are getting accelerated as a result of COVID. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, I, I think everybody, sponsors, teams, you know, are aware of and, and need to continue to be aware of is that the world is changing. And, uh, you know, the, the brands that, you know, connect to people on a human level and, you know, these, these, these cause marketing platforms, I think that's some of the most valuable real estate that you have in sports now. Um, you know, the opportunity to, you know, really demonstrate how a brand and how a team are making, you know, their communities a better place. Um, you know, the stuff that, you know, I think historically with a lot of teams, used to be perceived as kind of fluffiness, right? Or, oh, it's, you know, okay, every team has a community relations department. Okay, you know, here's, here's your budget, kind of do your thing. Uh, you know, I think that's really short-sighted. And, you know, I think that, you know, that's, that's really the most valuable real estate. I quite frankly think it's more valuable than dashboards for hockey. Um, uh, you know, so, so I think that, uh, you know, having the opportunity to work with a number of sponsors and, and uh, you know, work towards some of these goals locally has been a lot of fun. And, and I really think that that's the future. So what do you feel like the future holds for you? Uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I, I'm enjoying spending some great time with my, uh, my crazy uh, two boys, uh, you know, and the whole family and, and uh, you know, getting involved in some of these civic endeavors. And then, um, you know, keeping my eyes open, uh, seeing what, what comes from here. I mean, I love, uh, you know, running a team and, and you know, it, not just a, a sports team, but any business leading a team. I mean, it feels like a, you know, a, a, you're playing sports again, right? It feels like you're all fighting, yeah. and, you know, towards a common cause. So, uh, you know, I'm exploring different opportunities and seeing what, what uh, you know, the future holds. But, you know, something for me, I, you know, I remember, uh, you know, growing up and when I was in all these different things and, you know, you're trying to kind of plan out your future and, you know, what's, what's the best route and all this other stuff. And, you know, one thing that I've learned is you don't know anything. You don't know where life takes you. And, uh, you know, I mean, if you would have told me while I was in college that, you know, I'd, I'd be in Arizona, uh, been living here now for 14 years, and I will have, you know, I, I would have uh, been running a, a pro hockey team, uh, the Arizona Coyotes, I would have said you're completely nuts. So, um, yeah, you know, it, it, life's a fun ride and you got to go where the opportunities are. And, and I'm excited to, you know, see where we go next. What makes you get up in the morning and do what you do? Uh, you know, quite simply my family. Uh, you know, I've had a wonderful wife and, and a four-year-old and a two-year-old that are absolute maniacs, but they, they just bring so much joy to my life that, uh, um, you know, anything that, uh, you know, I'm doing with them and, and, you know, everything that I'm doing professionally to, you know, give them, you know, great opportunities and, and help support the family is, is uh, worth doing. If you were listening to this podcast 20 years ago, what do you wish you knew then that you knew now, that you know now? Oh, I, I jumped the gun on that. I I, 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 I think, honestly, that that is, uh, you know, what I said previously. I think, uh, you know, just, just not being so concerned for, you know, what the future looks like. Sure. Um, you know, just, just, you know, I, my philosophy, it, it, you know, hopefully it's, you know, some good advice for, you know, any young people listening is, you know, just work hard and build strong relationships and stay in touch with people. And, and uh, uh, you know, you don't have to have some set plan in life. Uh, you know, if you're doing those things and you have a positive attitude, 
you know, things are ultimately going to work out. You might not be able to, you know, with a crystal ball, tell people exactly what you're going to be doing 10 years from now, but that doesn't matter, you know, have fun and, and enjoy yourself and, and get after it and hustle and, you know, things tend to work out. Aaron, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks so much, Jason. It was wonderful being yeah, with you and, and like talking with you. It was a blast. Aaron Cohen, former president and CEO of the Arizona Coyotes. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Make sure to follow us at Sponsor Talk on Twitter and at the Sponsorship Space on LinkedIn and join our community if you're interested in learning more. Thanks and have a great day.